America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. People are so sensitive, and that's the hardest part, too, is with me being prior service. You know, we're used to joking around. And when I left Jefferson County, Missouri, I didn't have any type of cultural background. And so when I joined the Marine Corps, you know, I thought, you know, there was not really very many black people living where I lived and you didn't see many of them or Mexicans or, you know, so I had these stereotypes that were put in my head by people that were surrounding myself with. And when I got there, it wasn't even that way at all. It was like, everybody's wrong. Like you have to take the time to cultural yourself and make yourself a better human being instead of being stuck in your own ideologies. Episode 33. Todd's American Story. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Todd Nicely. Todd, welcome and thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Oh, no, thanks for having me. I enjoy doing these types of things when I get the chance and opportunity. It's always fun to get the story out there. And it's taken us a little bit of time to do this. We, I think we've been going back and forth, back and forth for months for some reason. We couldn't seem to connect. Yeah, that first time my little baby, we caught an allergy of some sort and it got pretty bad. So we had to take him to the hospital. We didn't figure out what it was, but that's all clear and gone now. I'm extremely honored to have you here. Can you share with us the beginning of your story, maybe a little bit about growing up and up until you joined the military and why you joined the military? Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same every time I tell it, but, uh, I was going to graduate half year high school early and that was back in 2001 and that half semester I went up and I had actually seen an army recruiter first and I was going to go join airborne. I always wanted to jump out of planes. I always wanted to be in the military because of a movie I seen when I was 16, Saving Private Ryan. And when I seen that movie, I realized that I had either A, done this before in a past life, or B, that was my calling. Because when I seen them run on the beaches and stuff like that, I was like, I owe it to these men to at least make sure that our country is protected still, even though there was not a war going on at the time. I That's what I wanted to do. And then um, three days before my army recruiter was coming for me to sign the papers to go into the army after my half year of high school, 9-11 happened. And my mom said, no way am I signing for you to go right now. You can if you get out of high school, but I'm not signing for you. Things led to things. I met a girl and we were dating. And I decided not to go because I got straight out of high school and went into carpentry. But then I started following the wrong people and crowd and getting myself in trouble. And I figured if I don't get myself out of this area, I'm going to end up in jail or prison. So I'm going to go do what I wanted to do. Four years later, at the age of 23, I decided to go and join the Marine Corps. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make it a challenge for myself. I heard this was the hardest boot camp. Let's see what I got. And so that's why I went and ended up joining the Marine Corps. Do you have any family history of people being in the military? Both my grandpas were. My one grandpa was a Marine. He didn't 
get to see anything though. He caught the end of uh, Vietnam, I think, or Korea. I don't know. He caught the end of Korea, I think. And then my two, I had a grandpa on my dad's side. He was in World War II and my uh, great uncle Willie was actually parachuted into Normandy. So. Oh, wow. How cool is that? I kind of skipped a whole generation of people. And then now I'm the only other person in my family besides a cousin in the Navy. And we got a large, large family. You said that Saving Private Ryan was kind of the catalyst for that. Did any of that, that's a pretty bloody movie. Did any yeah. of that scare you at all? It didn't scare me. It really made me want to see what was like in my mind. I thought, I want to know what was going through this gentleman's mind when they had to do this. Like, do I have the courage to do that? And so signing up at wartime wasn't really a big deal for me because that's kind of why I wanted to join the military was to protect our country like these men did prior to us. And so you know, I'm not grateful for the war, but being able to put myself into some kind of situation that I can relate to what I saw growing up has really helped me in my mind understand what those men had to go through. How was basic training for you? You said you wanted to do it because it was the hardest. And were you able to acclimate to it fairly easy? Where Was it scary? I always am a mind first person. You know, I believe you can overcome anything with your mind. When I first got there, it was like, what did I get myself into? But as the days went on, I acclimated to, you're not going anywhere. You're stuck here. Just tough it out, grind it out, and make the best of it. Where did you go after basic training? After I went from uh, recruit training in MCRD San Diego, I ended up in Camp Pendleton for School of Infantry training. And then after School of Infantry, I got sent to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where I served my fleet time with 2-2 Fox Company. And how many deployments did you have? Um, I had two. I did one combat deployment to Iraq in Rawa in 2008, and then in October of 2009 to March 26 of 2010, I was in southern Helmand, Afghanistan. And Afghanistan was where you experienced your traumatic injuries then? Yeah, I had like a month and a half left. How long were you there? Um, I was there from October of 2009 to March 26, 2010, which was date of injury. So You were supposed to come home in April then? Like the beginning of May. Ugh, that's rough. What were your duties there? Um, I was an infantry squad leader. I had control of 12 men. I basically would take these guys out and we would patrol and I'd have to delegate where everybody was and tell them where to be and make sure everything was running smooth and make sure that they were running smooth and everybody was all right. So it was a lot of work. It was a lot of stress and a lot of holding another man's life in your hand that really bears down on you. On that deployment, did you have a lot of close calls? Were you nervous? Was it, this is the way it is, and you went on with your day? Um, it was rough. The first, like, seven days in, I lost one of my best friends, and he was in a different squad, but it, it really took a toll on our platoon, because he was, like, everyone in the squad, everyone in the platoon loved him, and so that was kind of an eye-opener for me at the beginning, like, this is real. This is, you don't got time to grieve. You don't got time to think. You have to keep pushing and make sure that 
whatever happens, you have to keep your mind in this fight. And I believe that's where a lot of the PTSD that these people are getting are coming back from is because you, you lose friends, you lose people close to you, but you don't get the time to grieve about it or take the time to be emotionally aware of what's actually happening. You have to put that in the back and continue to move on and push forward with your duties and try not to think about it. Can you take us to the day of your traumatic injuries and share whatever you feel comfortable with? Um, yeah, I mean, I told this story a million times. I'm more comfortable telling my own story than listening to people hear and think what they were thinking when it actually happened to me. So, you know, because around where I'm from, I wasn't popular, but I had a lot of friends and family. And to hear their story when they like talk about what they were going through when they found out, kind of like weird because it's almost like 9-11. You know where you were when it mm -hmm. happened and what you were doing and a lot of these people can remember all that. And I'm like, wow, you guys remember exactly what you were doing when you heard about me? So it's kind of humbling. But um, March 26, 2010, it was just a, it was a quiet day. We had a, a another platoon, or not another platoon, another squad out in the hide that was watching something to see if someone would come pick it up. And um, they couldn't quite see it. They needed to know exactly where it was. So I was tasked with uh, going out there and walking around and them kind of leading me to where it was and then kind of putting like a, a marker by it so they could keep an eye close on that exact spot. I wasn't even really supposed to be out that day. My squad was in charge of keeping, making sure that the OP was uh, safe that day. So it was kind of like my day off rest. You know, we were getting towards the end and we weren't pumping out, pushing out as many patrols. But uh, on the way back, I uh, stopped the squad to cross the bridge and went to go cross that bridge and I took that first step and I just remember flying through the air and thinking to myself, I don't know if you can cuss, but I'll say shoot instead of what I really thought. This is a PG-13. <laughs> okay, well I thought, oh shit, they finally got me. They finally got me. So I remember landing down by the canal and the water splashing up on my face and from there it was kind of in and out trying to just make sure I was breathing and making sure that I wasn't screaming so much because I knew that this was my last time being alive. I didn't want my guy seeing me scream like that. So, Did you understand at that time, I'm sure you didn't, how severe your injuries were? Oh, yeah. And that's why I kept reminding myself. I just kept thinking, you know, if you breathe, you'll make it through this. If you breathe, you'll make it through this. You've got your guys on you. They're doing their thing. Just keep breathing. Don't stop breathing. So that was kind of my main task at hand. And I just tried to make sure that I was taking those deep breaths and trying to stay alive. Did you lose all four limbs right then? Um, I lost... Pretty much three of them, and one was twisted so badly that they had no choice but to take it off. I lost one right above the wrist right here, which is this arm, and then uh, one at the elbow, one at the, right above the knee, and then one right above the other knee. Were you in pain? It was excruciating. It, it was at the point to where I should, probably should have blacked out from all the shock and all, but... Like I said, I tried to stay awake for the most part that I could. And then once I got on the chopper, I don't really remember much. I remember just once they got me on that helicopter thinking, okay, now you can finally relax and breathe. You're going to be all right. It's amazing to me how all of you react physically 
Some of you feel the pain, some of you don't. It's really amazing to me how that works and why it works that way. I remember looking up and missing my arm, but when I woke up in the hospital, I knew for a fact my legs were gone. Like I couldn't feel my toes or anything anymore like that. It's really weird with my hands because when I woke up, I remember seeing my arm being missing, but it still felt like my hands were packed inside of a packaging. So I thought I still might've had them. I, you know, I, it didn't click in my mind that they were gone because it still felt like I could wiggle my fingers and things. And Is that the phantom pain? No, I mean, on my left side, I can still feel like I can wiggle a finger, but they're just not there. That's crazy. Every time I hear these stories about this phantom feeling and pain, it is crazy to me. You can't yeah. even explain it, I'm sure. Oh, sometimes my thumb will itch and I, there's just, you can't scratch it. It's just an itch that you have to deal with. It's like, ah, my thumb itches, but there's nothing there to scratch. That is crazy. Or, I can't remember who it was that I was talking to. And he was saying that he will sometimes bend over to scratch his leg. Yeah, like I want to scratch like my thumb's there, but it's, there's nothing there. And every now and then it'll, I'll get pains where it feels like a nail's being drove through my foot. But there's, it's like, it's only lasts for like five or 10 seconds, but it's just like, it's weird because you can't, there's nothing you can do about it. Did they put you in a coma? I believe so. I think they put me in a, like a ketamine coma for a few because I was in the ICU for like a week, I think. They flew me back straight from Germany. I went from Dwyer to Bastion to Germany, and then they didn't think I was going to live, so they flew my family out to Germany to fly on the plane home back with me. When you woke up, did you remember everything? Did it take you a oh, minute yeah. to... You did, okay. I thought I did. I had to collaborate what I seen and what I was doing with other people that were there. Um, a lot of them didn't like to talk about it, but I, I wanted to make sure that I, what I was thinking and telling people was exactly what happened. And for the most part, it's pretty accurate. And so when you woke up, you remembered you had been in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You had experienced this. I woke up and I was still uncertain if anyone else had got injured in the blast. And I kept telling my wife, well, my ex-wife now at I wanted to use her computer and she was like, honey, you know, you lost your hands, right? And I was like, no, but I do now. And I was like, <laughs> did anybody hurt? And she was like, no, nobody else got hurt. Good. And so then I laid back down and went back to sleep. So I was okay with that. Did you have anger, feeling sorry for yourself, which is totally understandable, where you didn't want to do anything? At first, no, it was that I'm getting out of this hospital feeling. I got up, I did my therapy, my PT, all that. And then, um, you know, once I conquered all that, I decided to leave the hospital and we moved out. It's weird. It kicks in later for certain people. Some guys are going through it now, 10 years later, and, you know, they didn't realize that they had all this trauma that they're dealing with. And for me, it took a while. And I was angry and depressed at one point to where I tried to commit suicide in 2016. I just, I had given up and I shot myself in the heart. So now I have a nicked heart that's not working at full capacity. How did that not happen then? I, they, I have no idea. I got airlifted to the hospital and everything. I don't know how I didn't bleed out. Oh, Todd, that's so sad. That breaks my heart. I'm, I'm alive, you know, and it was a, 
I'm glad it didn't go through because the look I had to experience when I opened my eyes and see my family there, it wasn't a feeling of the Taliban did this to you this time when they were happy when I woke up. It was, you did this to us this time. Now we're here because of you. And I'm glad they looked at me like that because that'll keep me and my mind straight on realizing that no matter how bad it gets, that it always gets better and that there's always someone there who needs you, whether you believe it or not. How long were you at that point? How long did you contemplate taking your life? Um, I was drinking a lot and um, I had just gone through a divorce and I was unhappy because I was isolated all the time. And I had at one point tried to reach out to the VA and they just told me they hung up the suicide hotline. They, they told me to call back in 30 minutes because I was too irate. And I don't blame them because I shouldn't have done it in the first place, but there was a lot of protocols and things that got missed and skipped through that whole process. And at that point, I was just like, well, if they can't help me, no one can help. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I'm, I'm just tired of my everything breaking, my prosthetics and not having help at this house because I'm isolated out of town and not having help and just having to struggle and do everything on my own that I was just like, I'm done. And so I did it. And then when I woke up, I realized that I was just being selfish and I was just, it was me who was putting the most pressure and weight on me to do all these things that I needed to take a step back and reevaluate who I was and what I was doing in life. Were you able to get help after that then? Yeah, it took me a few years, another phase where I I thought I was okay, I was fine, but then it started going downhill again. And then I went through a program called Focus Marines out here in St. Louis, and it completely changed my life. It um, changed the way I think, changed the way I interact with people, changes the way I approach situations. It really taught me a lot about who I was being and who I am as a person, because who I was being is not who I am as a person. Well, you know, I spoke with Travis Mills, uh-huh. and um, he credits you a lot. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, I know he does, but he doesn't have to do all that. I. But he does, I, uh, and he's very sincere about it, and that's why it. When I hear you say such a hard, the hard time that you had, and you think about the impact that you had on that one man that no one else could really understand. Yeah, he did it himself. He likes to credit me, but he did it himself. You don't even want to admit that you were an invaluable friend to him during that time? You know, I, I had already been out of the hospital when he uh, got injured. I was already up and moving and using my prosthetics. And I was the second quadruple amputee. So the first quadruple amputee, after I got injured, came to my room in a wheelchair and he was using his cell phone and things like that. He wasn't quite using his prosthetics and stuff yet, but it gave me hope that, you know what, I can, I'm still going to be able to do some things. You know, this guy's okay with it, moving and doing it. And so I had been out walking around in my prosthetics, using both prosthetics. And they had called me and asked me to, they said that there was another one because there was only originally three of us. And Who was we the were first all, one? 
uh, Brendan Morocco. Okay. But he had an arm transplant done, and then it was yeah. me, John Peck. He had the arm transplant done, and then Travis, and then Taylor Morris. Well, as I was getting on the plane to go see Travis, they called me. Like, as soon as I'm getting on the plane, it was quite ironic. They're like, we just got another one in, and his name's Taylor Morris. Will you go talk to him? I said, sure. So I went to go talk to Travis, and I walked in there. He always likes to tell the joke of me being like, well, it's too late now, bud. You're part of this party, whether you want to be or not. You're part of and an elite group, right? <laughs> right. Oh, the group. He's like, I don't want to be in your group. It's too late now, buddy. <laughs> but I was standing there talking with him. And I had already been through the process of the hospital. So I tried to explain that to him a little bit. I thought the same thing when I woke up in my hospital bed was, how am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to do anything now to support them and be able to do the things I used to do? And as I started going through the prosthetic, you know, environment and learning the things that they can give you and what they can't give you and things like that, and just being to overcome the patience of using them, I realized I was going to be able to do most. Now, there's still things I can't do that I need help with, like changing a light bulb or something. There ain't no way I'm going to be able to do that. But it doesn't hurt to try. So I went and I talked to these guys and was like, look, listen, I know it seems dark right now, but you're going to be able to move past this. It's going to be tough, but you're going to be able to do some of the things you wanted to do again. If you want prosthetics to be able to be a chef, they'll make you prosthetics to be a chef. I just was letting them know not to give up hope and that this hospital bed isn't the last place you're going to be. This might be a stupid question, but do the five of you, do you ever get together? Is, is it a special bond or not really? No, not really. I mean, like every now and then we'll all be in the same area sometimes because we all let Steven Solar Tunnels, the towers, build us a home. And so, you know, we've hung out, we talk. So when we do see each other, it's you're right back where you left off. But, um, you know, Travis, I, I haven't really spoke with him. He's a really busy guy. Taylor, he used to live out where I live. You know, I've seen him here and there. It's not like we call each other or hang out all the time. But, you know, when we do see each other, we all kind of have little tricks and tips that we give each other. I mean, I was at one event, my hand broke, so I had to use Travis's to eat. He just took it off and said, here you go. <laughs> he took his hand off, handed it to me. I put it on my prosthetic and I got to eat. So <laughs> you, you take know. turns. Here, I'll have a bite. Then you have a bite. So he took his, because these hands pop off of this prosthetic pretty easily. So he just took his off. I think it was the opposite side, so it was backwards, but at least I could still use it. So it was interesting. Oh, that's, kind, that's kind of funny. What do you miss more, your legs or your arms? Oh, I could have done so well without any uh, legs. You know, I, I would have been okay with that, but the not having hands part, it makes everyday tasks very, 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 very difficult. Well, it's like even um, when you said, even when you need to scratch. Yeah, I mean, scratching, even scratching your back, it's, I mean, plugging something into the wall I, that people take for granted every day, it's just like, boop, it's like, that could take me up to two minutes, depending on how many times I drop it, which angle I got to be at. It's difficult takes a lot of planning now to do things like you have to plan ahead of how you're going to grab it, how you're going to. So you look at things differently now than you used to. 
Let's talk about your family when you experienced your injuries. Who was it the hardest on? Um, whew, that's a tough one. I think it hit them all pretty equally. And then there was a lot of fighting at the hospital between my wife and family. And about what? The way I was going to get cared for because they didn't know if I was going to live. And so someone had to be making these decisions. And I think my mom was upset that my wife was getting to make the decisions, but they didn't know her like I did because I was always stationed in North Carolina. So there was a lot of headbutting going on there and um, a lot of hostility towards her, which kind of broke her down a little bit, but I don't blame my family either because they didn't know her, but I loved her. And so it sucks to hear when you wake up that there was a lot of arguing and fighting amongst the people because when you wake up, then now it kind of got pushed on me where it was like, hey, you need to say this or you need to say this to this person. And I'm like, no, you guys figure this out amongst yourselves. I'm just happy I'm breathing right now. <laughs> I'm trying to get up out of this hospital bed, right? Exactly. And so that was rough on me too. I don't feel like it was their fault. I feel like I took it on myself, but I don't feel like I ever got the time to actually, you know, relax and grieve about what had happened to me because I had to jump right back into that leadership role and try to control and maintain what was going on around me. Had you always been a leader in your family? You said jump back in that leadership role. Well, I meant like as in like, well, I'm the middle child. So I always try so to am keep I. the peace. Okay. You know, I'm always trying to keep the peace because Otherwise, it always ends up somehow coming back on me, like I'm the one who started it. When you go out, do you get used to the stairs? Do you even notice that anymore? Will people come up and ask? Um, you know, at first it was kind of like, what are you looking at? But then I realized that not a lot of people see people like me on an everyday basis. So there's going to be some stairs. I mean, kids are the funniest. They always got something to say. But um, like I said, the stairs and everything you get used to because, you know, think about it. Be, I put myself in their shoes. If I seen someone in their situation, I'd probably be curious too. Like, come up and say something. Ask a question. Don't just stare. That's the hard part. It's like, dude, I see you. I, I know you see me looking at you, catching you, staring at me. If you have a question, just ask. You know, don't be afraid. So we've touched on this. There are only five of you survived quadruple amputation. Uh -huh. How much of that has to do with your mental fortitude, do you think? Um, I don't know what, how much percentage of that I can put on a mental fortitude because I know my guys were trained well. I have gotten letters from the nurses at the first station that dropped me off that said that Whoever was the corpsman and guy in the field that helped me out was a rock star because they saved so much blood inside my body to keep me alive, to get me there. But um, during that time, I don't know if I can say that, it, you know, I had really had anything to do with it except for just trying to breathe. On your Facebook page, I scrolled through that a little bit. And some of the things that has happened to you, the online poker. Oh yeah, that was quite, that was uh, quite saddening, you know, that day, just for people to be that hostile. And Can you share with us what happened? Uh, I can't really remember what was said, a lot of it, because I tried to just let it go, but 
I told these guys I was in the military and they thought I was being racist, I guess you could say. And so they told me that I should probably go drown myself in the lake I live in because I'm a horrible human being and suck at life and that I suck at suicide, so I should try again. And so I was like, wow, that's amazing. I would tell, I told them I was in the service and that what that's where I first told them. And they were like, wow, dude, no one cares. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's uh, amazing. So there's some hateful people out there, but you get over it those things you're able to brush aside. It doesn't happen a lot. Please tell me it doesn't happen a lot. Oh, it doesn't happen a lot. That's the first time I can say that that's ever really happened to me. So it was kind of shocking. That's why I was like, whoa, okay, man. Like. And then I saw on there the voting fiasco. One really disappointed me. Um, because I hadn't changed my address and county, I wasn't allowed to vote. If I wanted to vote, I was going to have to drive three hours away to go vote. And for me, that's disheartening because me as a veteran, it shouldn't matter where I vote. I served this country for the right to vote. And now you're telling me I can't because I'm not in my right county or didn't register in the right place. You're taking away a vote from a veteran who served their country. I think you mentioned that in the video, a veteran who lost four of his limbs for his country. I mean, and you're telling me I can't vote? And that was the first time I ever went to actually try to vote. Because usually I, the first time I was in Afghanistan, I didn't send in an absentee ballot. And then the other times after that, I just, I didn't care for either candidate. So I, it wasn't like I, it really mattered to me. It's always like, these but, are the two best people that you can come up with, right? <laughs> That's really sad. How many children do you have? I have three. I have one child of my own and two stepchildren. Okay. And how old are they? Uh, the oldest is 15. He's a boy. And then the girl's six. And then our youngest is Elijah and he is seven or seven and months. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Is it interesting how they all react? I met them four or five it was about five years ago now. So for five years, they've got acclimated, but they were full of questions too. I mean, six-year-old, she was like two when I met her. This is normal for her. She draws pictures of me and I'm in my wheelchair and things like that. So, you know, she knows not to put legs on me when we're in the pictures. Are you a, an, a para-athlete? Is that what you call it? Or I've seen you like in your Facebook doing things. Oh, wheelchair rugby? Oh, is that what that is? Okay. Yeah, yeah, wheelchair rugby. I uh, play. We didn't get to have a season last year, which was very upsetting to me because my first year was the year prior to that. And I was really looking forward to the second year because I wish I would have found that years ago because it really gives me a way to get my energy out and exercise in, in a healthy manner. I did try to kind of figure out a way to do weights, but it's difficult because you always got to have someone there to strap you in and do things for you. So having that sport that gives you that little bit of freedom to not have someone helping you all the time is was good and i'm really looking forward to it this season are they all veterans or are they people from all walks of life i'm actually the only one who can walk into the freaking practice no most of them are either like spina dipta or als you got to have at least something wrong with three of your limbs in order to play this game so three yeah Wow. I feel like there is a real disconnect between most Americans 
and military. Do you believe that that is the case? A disconnect? I believe that there are still a ton of people out there who appreciate the service because I still have people that when I go to restaurants, I'll get up to leave and they're like, your bill's paid. And I'll be like, well, who paid it? And they're like, well, they already left. Well, that's not fair for me because I want to say thank you, but I, I appreciate that. But at the same time, it kind of drives me nuts at the same time too. Cause it's like, you know, I appreciate that. I would have rather you just came up and said, thank you and moved on. I'm a very self-sufficient person. I try to be. I think it's because we don't know how to say thank you, Todd. There's not an adequate way to say thank you. Right, but everyone thinks that there's a bigger way to say thank you, and most guys will tell you, just say thank you. It's it's that easy. I really get aggravated with Memorial Day. I try to stay away from it because I believe a lot of people don't even realize what Memorial Day actually stands for or what it is for. And that really hurts because a lot of people just look at it as a Dexter day off and, you know, a barbecue. And then they'll start thanking me. And I'm like, Memorial Day is not a day to be thanking me. It's a day to be thanking the families that lost someone or being at the graveyards of the places of these men. You know, so I try to go there if I can or at least say a prayer for the guys that didn't come home and spend some time with the family and I actually went and bought a shirt for Memorial Day that says, don't thank me, thank the ones that didn't come home. (laughs) A lot of people don't really understand what Memorial Day is about. I didn't really understand. I thought it was for all veterans until probably 10 years ago. That you really, a lot of people really don't know about that. What are you doing now to help veterans? Um, Right now, I basically take on whatever anyone asks me to do. I just went, like I said, went to Fort Benning to talk to some prior service guys that got back in who had to go back through a little bit of basic training because they were out too long. I talk at Focus now who helped me so great and dearly. Um, I go to speak to them on Tuesdays and tell them how Focus worked for me and how you got to work it. But I try to do whatever I can. You know, I don't really have I'm not like Travis. I don't have an organization that does things like that. That's not my forte or my specialty. I never was good with being in the public light. And, you know, it kind of fell on me. That's why I became good at it. But I'm more of a, I like it out in my country, 14 acre home. We shoot our guns and no one complains. We do what we want. It's Way better than being in a neighborhood, way, way better. Did you always want a lot of acreage? I've spoken to a few of you who have a lot of ground, or is it something that you crave afterwards for some reason? I grew up, you know, with my grandpa and his farmland and him leasing so many acres, and we rode bikes and shotguns. And a dream of mine is always to have enough little land to do kind of something like that. When I lived down at the Lake of the Ozarks, I did that on the water. You know, my neighbors were close, but I could escape to the lake. But now that I had to move closer back to St. Louis to be around family again, I was like, I want land to just have. They stopped making it. Do you have animals on your land? No, that would be way too hard. Can you tell me what America means to you? Um... America, to me, means winning the lottery. I mean, I think we were won the lottery when we were born in this country, and I think a lot of people are jaded by that because 
they don't travel as much as they should or get around, especially with COVID. I mean, I know like going to a different country like Germany and all that, that's not much. But if you go to these poorer nations and see that what the, what they're struggling through and being over in Iraq and Afghanistan just helped me realize how great we have it here and not to take it for granted. Like I was walking through trash and gross stuff. So when I see someone litter, I, I want to lose my mind. I'm like, take care of where you live. Be proud of where we are. I mean, yeah, we're not perfect yet, but go live somewhere else then and try that. I mean, you're going to see that this is one of the greatest countries in the world and that if we all just stick together and stop making excuses on why we should hate each other, then it would be a way better place. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate your time. No worries. I need to give a huge shout out to Todd. It was a humbling experience to spend time with him. I appreciate Todd's candor about his own PTSD and depression. Our veterans suffer both physically and mentally. They carry heavy crosses, but as with Todd, healing is possible. You can find Todd on Facebook at Todd Nicely Wounded Warrior, or if you are a gamer, you can watch Todd on TikTok and Twitch at No Limbs 0311. Next week is a special episode with Kyle Fox from Follow the Flag perfect timing for Independence Day. Reminder, if you see a veteran, simply say thank you. And in Todd's own words, America means you won the lottery. See you on Friday.